Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to today's Sherlock's In Conversation With podcast. I'm Georgie Courage Cole, the founder and CEO of Sherlock's. And today's podcast is the first in a new series of neurodiversity podcasts. According to researchers at Harvard, neurodiverse is a term used to describe people who experience and interact with the world around them in different ways. In short, it goes some way to proving there is no one right way of thinking, learning and behaving, and differences should not be viewed as deficits. As a parent of a child with neurodiversity, I've been wanting to host this podcast series for a while now. And as I said, today is is the first in a three-part series, at the very least. Um, We are running on neurodiversity, which will be an individually focused on ADHD, ASD and dyslexia. Today I'm joined by psychotherapist Sol Matoshin and Stephanie Ferrario. Stephanie is the parent of a child with ADHD and we met on the plane flying to the US this summer and I saw this very glamorous woman sitting in front of me and thought, God, I'm here with my three children right next to her and I'm really worried I'm going to interrupt her peace. And I leant over the seat in front and she was sitting there with a handout, a massive great printout of A4 pages, bulldog clipped together. And on the front it said, understanding the ADHD brain. And I was like, God, life is weird. And I leant over the seat in front and we have this slight joke amongst my friends and family, that I cannot go anywhere without talking and meeting somebody. And my friend said, my God, you were five minutes on the plane and you'd already met somebody. Anyway, I said, I'm really sorry to look nosy, but I can't help looking at what you're reading. Are you a doctor? Um, And you said, no, I'm a parent. And we chatted and chatted and exchanged emails. And here you are. Welcome. Thank you so much, Georgie. It is so lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Thank Um, you for coming. I I have to say that we got chatting and you said that you and your son used to go around and talk about being a parent of an ADHD child and what life was like for him. Yes, we did. And actually, sadly, he doesn't want to do it anymore because he's almost 18. And I think he's just done with being different. I think this is a new phase for him. And he is uh, functioning very well within a normal school system uh, with his medication. And he's got really good predicted A-level grades. And so, you know, he's really coming out the other end. So he doesn't want to talk about it anymore I think he's heard it and talked about it for so long and so many years and he's um, severely uh, ADHD but also dyslexic so I think um, you know he really just wants to fit in now he just wants to be like everybody else which which I think is is a wish for many of mm-hmm. uh, the children that are diverse in, in any which way whatever that may be 
but it's been lovely to meet you and I got to meet your Otto who is a <laughs> really divine child and I think that by now my radar is so good I go anywhere and I see it, it immediately you know I think immediately oh gosh he's just like Ludo was when he was 10 and I know I was so worried back then as well you know sitting in, a, in an airplane and thinking oh my gosh are we going to disturb someone and actually It never is this way because it's just lovely to see him. And he was so sweet. And <laughs> and, and and so, you know, I, I, I just brought up a lot of um, really nice feelings, actually, because when you have a child that is different, I always think you go on this journey and you and, and there are so many things that happen on this journey. And some of the pieces on the journey are really hard and they are hard for the child and the mother, especially, but also the rest of the The family and 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 you know on this journey you meet therapists and psychiatrists and you know nutritionists and uh, doctors of any type and you do so many tests and you go through so many and learning uh, disability uh, uh, therapists and learning departments in schools and you know you name it you have so many people who become part of this journey of our children and I think it's actually a beautiful journey so I'm very grateful that I have a child that is different but different which is also a beautiful thing and there are so many incredible lessons learned wow i mean i'm sitting here my heart is racing i feel very grateful to have met you and salt welcome thank um you. thank you so much for joining us for people listening i mean you're a psychotherapist mm -hmm. with a lot of letters after your name um <laughs> i'm just saying yeah um, but thank you so much for joining thank you for having us today. Can you um, can you tell us a bit about you and, and what you do? We felt it was really important today to have a mother of somebody mm. who so great to hear that Ludo done his bit with you talking and he now is like, Mom, I want to be my own person. And da, da, da. Yeah. But we really wanted to have your experience and also the experience of somebody in the medical world um, because I think they're both hugely valuable to people listening. What, what exactly do you do on a day to day? So I'm an integrative psychotherapist and I work at the recovery center and being an integrative psychotherapist has allowed me to tailor my approach depending on the client's needs. I did go down the route of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which then brought me to neurodiverse people and ADHD. So now I'm quite focused and I do have quite a few clients with ADHD and I think what I'm trying to help them at, with at the moment is more develop that toolbox and skills to really manage uh, any executive functioning that they might be struggling with, including problem solving, organizational skills, to-do lists, you know, even small things that end up having very big outcomes like post-its or colored pens. So it's all about, you know, learning what they're struggling with, what their difficulties are and kind of building that toolbox according practical ways exactly i feel like it's important to say at this point before we get too far down the road that i really feel like there's change and i think i said this to you when we met and i've said it to lots of people i'm really grateful to be the parent of a child who is neurodiverse now and not 30 years ago i mean i remember when i was at school a boy who was sat in the corridor pretty much every day because he was in inverted commas naughty and couldn't sit still. I look back now and it's only in the last years I'm thinking he 
wasn't naughty. Mm. He had ADHD. Mm. He couldn't focus. In fact, there were a couple of boys at my school, my independent school in London, and both of them were, were naughty. And I look back now and and I and I'm so grateful that my son who takes medication and will come on to that and that allows him to focus in the classroom is a child now and I feel like there's real change coming and I feel we're sort of very aware of the importance for diversity when it comes to culture and heritage and body shape but there's also this diversity that you can't see right but I'm really glad that it's now and I can really feel and maybe I'm well I am more keyed into it than your average person but it's happening right there is change happening and you talked about schools Steffi and why you wanted to go and talk at other schools because you felt like education needed to catch up Mm -hmm. so across the board whether it's ASC or dyslexia or whatever Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think there's much more understanding and people want to have more understanding. And there is much more awareness and promotion of the fact of being neurodiverse doesn't mean that you can't function or you can't be part of you know normal society, mm. normal, call it normal. Or Whatever normal is. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so there is much more understanding, awareness, and I think that we're much more prepared to And confront. we're taking some responsibility in knowing. No, no, someone said to me the other day, why is it that every other of my friends is, is being diagnosed as having ADHD or ADD? And I said, I think it's just that we're all on the spectrum, right? It's a whole spectrum mm. of years ago when we were a child, someone who was a bit of an introvert was mm. was a bit geeky or a bit booky or a bit whatever. Probably they're just slightly further along the along the spectrum in terms of diversity, right? Mm. We're all on Mm. it somewhere, I think. Mm. I think we can be hopeful, but I think also there is a way to go. You know, I'm doing the university applications now and there's no space to tick a box even for uh, any sort of diversity other than racial diversity. And so I just think it's a really important conversation to have and there is lots of things we need to improve, especially as we have the data that companies with a diverse you know, group of people in the company, but especially also in leadership positions, just makes a better company, a more successful company, and therefore contributes to a better economy. And I mm-hmm. think as we are all in an economic crisis, I find it is almost a financial necessity mm-hmm. to keep all of these conversations going because we will contribute to a country's GDP mm-hmm. by doing better for people with um, any type of diversity, but definitely neurodiversity, because neurodiverse people think in different yeah. ways, mm-hmm. you know, and there are so many different ways we can think. There are visual ways, verbal thinkers, objective thinkers. So um, ADHD people think in a different way. They're incredible um, problem solvers yeah. a lot of the times, you know. They absolutely Resilient. thrive on challenge you know they love complex issues and getting their head around it and they'll think and because they think at a million miles a minute you know they're incredible people to employ but because Mm. it's more difficult for them to get through the school system come out the other end it is so much more difficult to identify these people and they are just um, not serviced right now in a mainstream school system. I know, and I mean, that's the trouble. We have this, we have, I mean, God dang it, we started the national curriculum, but we you know we have this curriculum that's like this. Yeah. And, you know, it prioritizes English, math and science and the humanities. Yeah. 
And for some crazy reason, you know, we make a child who might have this incredible creative mind. And to your point, I think, you know, children, neurodiverse children are very, you know, resilient, persistent. I mean, so persistent. Yeah. And we, we insist on making everyone sit mass and attaching a letter to their name that Absolutely. is ultimately they're going to be judged against for years. And you mm. make everyone sit mass, but don't make them sit the exam. Mm. So, yeah, there is such a, a long way to go. And in fact, I, I think I said to you, I interviewed Dame Stevie Shirley. Shirley yeah. And um, she, named Stephanie Shirley, she had to change her name to Stevie when she was setting up her business in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and she then went on to, well, she is a, a philanthropist now. Her child was autistic and sadly died. Um, and if people are listening and haven't listened to that podcast, please listen to it. She was one of the most incredible guests I've, I've ever had the privilege to interview but she said to me georgia you must use your voice she said you must use your platform you must use sheer lux to talk about this to talk about neurodiversity to talk about the fact that you can't just pigeonhole neurodiverse people as people who should be in the tech department you know they have all these other skill sets that can benefit corporates like being amazing at sales because they're persistent so yeah you know, I'm sort of horrified that there is no box to tick at university. Exactly. Yeah. So I Let's think, start that petition. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that I'm up for that. Absolutely. Mm. I think there's so many more conversations we have to have and so many areas where we have to stop thinking that only the verbal thinkers can do good. And so, yeah, I'm very excited to about this conversation, but hopefully many more conversations around the change that needs to take place one of the things stevie shirley said was that people need to be able to go into an interview and say that they have that they are neurodiverse because if you're neurodiverse you know you like order like to your point you want post-it notes and color code and she said put somebody who's neurodiverse in an interview situation and throw them questions they've never seen before they're not going to perform well so we need to change the way things are done and people need to be able to go in there and be open. Can we go back to sort of the beginning? Um, so sort of to you, I suppose. How do you know if your child's neurodiverse? I mean, for years, for me, I knew and everyone said, and he's just a bit, you know, slow at me to use Martin's. And I was like, no, no, no. I fought everybody to get to the point where we had a diagnosis. But no one in my family was telling me it was the right thing to do. I just had this gut feel. Mm. What do you do if you have that? How do you know? What are the signs? I mean, I think a gut sense probably from a parent is quite the most powerful. You know, you are the person who's supposed to know your child best. So if it comes from a gut instinct, you know, surely there is something going on for the child. And at what age is it it right to sort of... Because people often say to me, just wait, just wait, just wait, it's too early. And I am, you know, I liked to have my ducks in a row. I wanted to information gather. I wanted to know how we were going to react to this and what our life was going to look like. And at what age can you start to... So usually... a bit of a waiting game, isn't there? Yes. Usually before the age of six, you know, you should wait to diagnose a child with any diverse... any neurodiversity condition. But before that, there could already be some signs that might tell you that there is something going on for the child but the diagnosis usually is not made till the child is six years old six yeah and what's your first step if you're seeking a diagnosis who do you go to i remember the word psychiatrist 
coming into the mix very early. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I found that really terrifying. Yeah. Is that who you're going to? First, you should go to pediatrician or first okay. or primary physician. You know, I think that's where I would say it starts. You know, if you identify something could be different, something could be going on with your child, go to that first physician or your primary physician could be the pediatrics or GP, usually pediatrics at that age. And then from there, depending on what they assess or what they think, depending on what they're specialized in, they might refer you to a psychiatrist, you know, that might take over potential assessment if if that psychiatrist sees that it might be something that could be happening for the child. There is a lot of people that will be involved in the diagnosis, you know, and also the follow-up and checking in and, you know, the development and continuity of, of that diagnosis. But I would say the first step would be potentially a GP or pediatrician that might refer you if they consider there is a potential diagnosis, they will refer you to, to someone more specialised. And what will you be looking for at home? I mean, for me, it was delay in meeting milestones. So everything was sitting yeah. up. And some milestones, they were faster, right? I mean, if I look back now, I think, wow, I, I, I had this child. He was my first child. Uh, I had no experience what babies were supposed to do at what stage. And he was so different right from the start. I remember every doctor and every sort of healthcare professional coming through the house said, this child had just has a growth spurt. And I remember thinking, gosh, he was just different from everybody else. And See, no Otto one... was so the other side. Mm. Otto just didn't cry. Didn't, mm. didn't, he was just so good. Really? Yeah, that's it. No, oh God, no! I had absolutely. He was obsessed with me, and he was yes. not sleeping. He had fifteen dummies on the go, and he was excessively sort of sucking something at all times. He was drinking three bottles more than any other baby, and I just kept on thinking, he just, he just seems different. And I, but I had no experience, so I didn't know. And I certainly didn't have a GP pointing anything out. He was just saying, oh, this child is in a growth spurt. And I thought, he's always in a growth spurt. Isn't that a bit strange? And that kept on going. And it kept on going, you know, when he was, he then was walking faster than everybody else already before really? he was 12 so he months was, he old. He was ahead of his milestones. He was ahead of those milestones. But, you know, he had such delayed speech. He didn't really speak before he was four years old. And I was just told, well, it's because you're German and, you know, her dad is Italian and he has too many languages and you have to speak to him in English. And I just, and this, thank you for saying the gut feeling is so important because I think we don't place enough values on mothers with gut feelings, you yeah. know. I was always rebuffed. I kept on asking the GP about certain things and he said, no, no, don't worry. He's just got delayed speech and, you know, he definitely couldn't follow sort of simple commands you know he was absolutely unable to follow a sort of instructions he definitely had impulsive behavior he wasn't sleeping he had every symptom in the book you know if I look at the checklist now he displayed these symptoms from a very very early age and no one ever told me that maybe it could be ADHD until the school where he was obviously Obviously not functioning like 
everybody else. And having said that, everybody else, I hate saying it because actually 10% of school children are diagnosed with ADHD and I don't want to know how many aren't diagnosed. What was the, so school spotted it? Yeah, so he went into reception aged four. Really, he bo he barely spoke. I mean, his speech was along the lines of, me no like you. That's what he used to say because, because he had issues. He couldn't uh, verbalize things like everybody else, which meant that he was quite physical. He was a big guy. And so in order to get someone's attention, he would shove someone, for example, which of course is not allowed. And for him to, and he wasn't an aggressive child, but he was just very physical. And because he was a big guy already back then, I think he actually scared other children children um, at times. And I remember there was at least half a year where I couldn't go to the playground with him. He wasn't trying to hurt somebody else, but he tried to communicate. To communicate. And his way of communicating was sort of shoving and, you know, mm. sort of being physical. And I remember other parents getting very upset. And that's when I thought, okay, let me go to the pediatrician and, you know, see. And they just said no. And, you know, he, he just has delayed speech. And then they you know, fixed me up with a, a, um, a speech therapist and so on. And I sometimes I think I wish they had listened to my gut instinct, which told me that he's different. I didn't know what that meant, but I could definitely see a massive um, uh, difference between him and other children his age and even his siblings who then came along, you know, uh, at one point. At what point did you get a diagnosis and via he, who? He was six or six seven and um, he got diagnosed through a child uh, psychiatrist at the time in London. And did you get um, a referral from a GP? How did you and I got a referral from a GP, but really only because the school insisted on it at right. that time. So the school insisted to diagnose him one way or another. I mean, we, we knew he was definitely dyslexic because when they go into reception age four, for him to learn the three or four letter words were really a thing. I mean, yeah. I remember thinking, okay, I have to make this fun. Otherwise, this is just terrible. And um, so we used to make these sort of treasure hunts where he would get a sweet if he uh, got a letter. And so, you know, one thing would lead to the next. And so this is how he learned to sort of try and and, and, and learn the word dog and cat. One, and, thing, you know. one thing I, I would just jump in there and say, for people who might be listening, I remember that. And I spoke to somebody at a point when I was in the dark dark place and I hadn't had a diagnosis and he was at a school in a similar you know, state to your son could say very 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 little he wasn't physical he never has been physical at all he's not an alpha boy at all mm. I remember calling all these schools that had great send departments or and I was like information gathering like a lunatic with a sort of five-year-old and I got through to some school in Oxford not the school my son is at it was a day school and I spoke to this guy and he said to me, flood him, flood him, flood him with speech therapy. I just remember him saying to me, at this young age, and I'd be interested to know, Sol, if you'd agree with this, but at this young age, just flood him with speech therapy. And I worked full time and do little exercises every single day so that we could really keep flooding it. And he did little exercises with my nanny. And then I'd do a bit when I came home. And it was a horror. It was a total horror and I found it 
so depressing. But he can now read and he can read really well. And I feel like you get so hung up. I was just listening to you yeah. say that. And it's it's real torture for parents. And I remember in his speech therapy, I remember he had the speech therapist and she said, hopefully by the time he's 10. And I remember we were coming back from St. George's Hospital and we were sitting in a taxi. And it literally sort of breaks my heart now. And Otto said, eh, at E. And he was saying, where is taxi? And he couldn't say a t or an X. And they used to tell me to sit in the, look at a mirror and get him to smile and try and do a s like this. And he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. And this taxi driver turned around to me and said, what language is your child speaking? And I Terrible, Georgie. Oh, So much. And I would just, hearing you say that, like, for people who are listening who are, I mean, I'm not where you are with an 18-year-old saying, Mum, I want to be my own person. I'm going to, you know, I dream of that. But I just, that's learning to speak as a child and read as a child. I would just say that there aren't many adults who sort of fit this brief that can't read and speak. And so just as words of comfort. I mean, I was told I just, when tr- he was in... That reminded res- me when you were talking of how awful those... Yes, and awful. And at the same time, I'm now so thankful for every one of these lessons. I really am. I mean, my heart swells up and I thank the universe every day for 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 being on this journey with him because I think there is so much beauty that comes out of it. And I was told when he was four and in reception by the headmistress of his school in London that he will never make it through school. And I just thought, you wait and see. And it was clear that he can't stay in the school. So we changed schools and we then further down the line changed schools again and moved out of London for many different reasons to a school that had a really amazing, amazing department for, you know, any learning disability and any neurodiversity. And I think... um, And just for clarification, this is a mainstream school with, I think that's the other thing that is is really and we're sort of jumping around a bit here my child's at a school which is for boys with learning difficulties primarily dyslexia which we're going to do in a subsequent podcast but also has a lot of children with ADHD yeah um because they're so interlinked with each other but one thing I would say is that and there was an article in a magazine the other day with different teenagers I don't know if you saw it all at different schools and it was talking about the fact you know there was this girl and she's like I'm 15 I'm doing my GCSEs and I'm at this school and there's a really great send apartment and then there was another child at another they were all other than my son's school which was in the article they were all mainstream 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 schools yeah with send departments and I think what's changing is having a send offering used to be a bit of a box ticking yeah. now there are someone said to me at a school the school my daughter's going to apparently one in four children have send needs so I think the point is as well to people listening like your son went to a mainstream school with an incredible offering right for children yeah I mean the first school he went to I really will never forget that they were absolutely so unbelievably unhelpful and that was a you know normal school in London and and I and I remember thinking wow okay I'm I'm not sure what I'm up against now because this wasn't a sort of, you know, well-known uh, sort of uber-academic school, but it was a normal, a mainstream school, and they were absolutely unable to handle uh, uh, my son, who, you know, isn't even... Um, 
you know, he's able to be in a mainstream school. So um, I think that there is uh, many more different, uh, you know, stops on the spectrum that I mean I remember thinking okay uh, when he's older and I have the time I will uh, make a change in this space because they really were very unhelpful and even the next school then in London that was a little bit more helpful and had a better learning um, department or send department that wasn't really working out for him either so I think you know, as a parent, you then need to see what is my situation? What change can we make here? Uh, what are we able to do? What are we not able to do? And everyone has a different journey and every child has a different journey, of course. But our journey then led us to moving uh, to Sussex, where there was a um, prep school that really uh, embraced every one of his differences and 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 you know they had lessons that were half an hour long and not an hour long and no one was ever sitting on his chair for more than five minutes they they had an incredible he was in the learning uh, um this in the in the in the send department every single day and that for two or three years there were teachers that embraced him there were teachers that were unbelievably human because they weren't trained in neurodiversity necessarily either the teachers the send department was but but they were just great humans and they embraced kids that were different and the classes were made up of lots of kids that were different but some were you know highly functioning and others weren't but they weren't making a human difference to those children it's not that you fit in the box and you don't and therefore you're good and the other one isn't good which I think is still something that perpetuates everywhere to this day and age which yeah. is why I think we do need to talk about it more and we need the souls of this world to to educate and to um, to to talk to schools and schools need to run programs for their teachers to understand the differences, help parents along the way, help the children along the way, because they are incredibly important once they hit the workforce. It's just that we need to get them there. You know, we need to and run the, the damage. And, and just sorry to interrupt, but you know, I have this sort of thing in my. Do you remember that film Forever Young with? Was it Mel Gibson? Yeah. yeah. When he got in a coffin, you take a child who's not an alpha, who gets picked on at school because he's too weak and they know he's not going to fight back until he then does and then he's in trouble. And I just think, if only I could just put you in a box and wake you up when you're 20 and it would all be all right. But these years that you're coming out of with Ludo and I'm going into with, an, with a 10-year-old terrify me. Schools have such a massive role to play in how you form, let alone if you're neurodiverse. Can we go back to the sort of medical side and, and back to sort of that diagnosis? I mean, you talked about six. Can we talk on a sort of practical level about those years? And, you know, for me, it was flooding them. It was trying to keep him developing yeah. until he, you know, he goes to a school. It's an independent school. I remind my children when they moan that I'm not around, why I'm working my ass off. <laughs> and I'm I'm grateful when I go there. They actually have a charity and they're raising money for bursaries to help families that don't have the means for the fees, um, which is great. And I'm fully behind, but I know that I'm lucky and I've got him to there and I'm really grateful for it. But for people at home who aren't there yet, who don't have a school that's massively supportive, 
what can they be doing? What should they be doing? Where do the doctors come in? Where does medicine come in? What's provided by the state? Like, can you give us a bit of of intel from your side mm-hmm. of the arena? I had two questions. Yeah, there were sort of two so questions. Sorry, there. okay. So one, what can they do in terms of the medical side, which I guess is that medical assessment, is that yeah. what you're referring to? And, and, and while they're waiting to get to the point where they're diagnosed... At home. And what can you do at home? What should, what should you be doing as parents in those years? And to get them into the right hands? Yeah. I, I think it, the most important thing is to try and really understand your child and who they are, you know, besides getting a diagnosis or not, you know, who who are they, what are they struggling with, you know, how can you help them, how much information can you read, how much can you understand? I think it's important to look at the family dynamic. Can you explain medically what ADHD is? It's a frontal cortex. It, it, it affects the neurotransmitters, specific neurotransmitters that are linked to dopamine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it affects the frontal cortex, which basically um, is the part of the brain that uh, takes care of executive functioning, attention, distractibility so it affects it's almost that part of the it's almost the brain of the brain you know the part of our brain that works as the part as the brain so it develops at a much much slower pace Mm -hmm. so children that should be developing at this age and have these specific developments don't have them it's a chemical imbalance exactly right Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think people talk about it, don't they? And I'm really fascinated to talk to you in a bit about supplementing because we spoke about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I was very big on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, still big on that. And so, yeah, so it's this chemical imbalance mm-hmm. which impacts focus, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in turn impacts memory. Exactly. Recall. Exactly. All those things. Impulsivity, distractibility and attention. So what you can do at home, what I was saying is that I think it's important to really understand who your child is, what they're struggling with, what can, how can you help them inform yourself, you know, support groups, Facebook groups, other parents that might be struggling with a similar situation. So a lot of information, because it impacts the way they communicate and, and they interact, I think there's also quite important to find a way to communicate with with your child. I think that's one of the things you can do while you're awaiting a diagnosis, regardless. You know, how can you communicate with your child? How can you understand your child better? You know, it might not be by speaking. They might not be listening to what you're saying. They might not be processing or remembering what you're saying. So could you have a different approach, a different way of communicating with your child? Can it be more visual? You know, what does your child mean? How can you communicate with your child in a better way that you and they understand what you want to get across? I think there's a lot of tips for parents in terms of what to do at home in terms of organization, diet, supplements, how to involve the family, uh, things you can do to help your child cope with what they're struggling with at home. Like I said, problem-solving, organisation. So there's quite a few things you can already start doing. Another thing is probably, you know, in terms of parenting and in terms of yourself and how aware you are of yourself in that regard, I think that there has to be quite a bit of awareness of the expectation you also have of that child mm. and a better understanding of yourself. God, you've covered so many things there, Sorry, Sol, that sorry I yeah. want to, No, no, no. I mean, great answer, but but 
there's so many things there to to touch on I mean to start with your parenting skills approach your expectations on your child I mean god I feel like we could talk and talk for hours and hours on this topic but you know as I said you covered so many things I mean Steffi to you it's incredibly hard to parent a child with ADHD it's incredibly hard on I think a mother in particular on a father and on a father in different ways with different approaches to parenting and incredibly hard for siblings I think it's hard socially it's hard you know yeah I mean I think that many times were really hard and I remember thinking gosh maybe I've got a little burnout at one point but I think you learn so much as a human and I think in the end that has just been positive in my life now if I look back you know which which really is something that I want to stress I mean I was really challenged uh, so often but in a good way, because now I think I really do not approach parenting in the sort of judgmental way anymore. Yes, and that's, I that's think the good thing it taught right. me more lessons that I obviously had to learn because I don't think that we get neurodiverse children, um, you know, for nothing. As in, there's a real reason behind it, and I think that I really see that. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That now, and I think that it gave me so many lessons and I and so many moments where I had to find ways to improve, get better, learn. I think I've done an incredible amount of reading, training. I mean, I've... I've I've really immersed myself and I think that's incredible because you learn as a person and it makes you a better person. I'm a better person because of him. I'm a better person because I had to find ways. I had to become a yogi. I had to become really good at meditating. I, I said became... to my husband, I think we are I think we are better people because 
I'm not that hockey mum. I'm not that mother of a son I thought I would be. I had three brothers who were the sportiest boys at their school. I thought I would be that mother of a son and I'm not the mother I thought I'd be. Yeah, yeah it's a, you, it's a you, good way to You don't anymore. I mean, I think I lost my total... I mean, I lost completely judging anything. Mm. I'm not judging anything anymore because I just think you never know and everything is sort of a gray area. And, and that's really something that taught me. And I think that you really learn and then you work with people such as Saul who teach you. I, we had signs everywhere around his room because when I said, Ludo, please, can you can get up? Can you please get dressed? Can you go and brush your teeth? That was already three too many instructions that he couldn't follow. So for just for us to get out the door and at the time it was getting two children to school was really an impossibility and every morning turned into this nightmare scenario. Nightmare. And, you know, so nightmare you learn. For us, medication changed our lives and it's not for everybody let's come back to medication and to supplementing which isn't a word I've got into yet but I want your advice Steffi no, I really you have to you have I to. really do and I very much thought about what you said when we met but because it's really a chemical it's a chemical process and therefore they don't produce certain things mm. it's just as if you devoid the body of dopamine yeah. right no one would function and so there are so many different ways. I mean, medication is obviously at one point the absolute most successful way of doing it because they just get a whole load of dopamine mm -hmm. every day, which is what they need. So I sometimes think if we were just able to make up the world how we... I mean, now, if I were able to, I would define our little world completely differently. And I wouldn't try and just squeeze him into the drawer because I believe that I have actually harmed him when I tried to do that. And so if I were able to do it again, I think I would potentially... Um, have grabbed the family and moved to Costa Rica to the beach or I don't know and he would have gone to a you know school on the beach um, oh, you in have the a whole trees or whatever yes fund and yeah you well know, exactly it's, it impacts it's hard it's hard can we go back a step and come back to the supplementing because you really made me think about it that challenge of parenting, I think, a young child. That's, um, I think, why we need to, as parents, learn these coping mechanisms. So what are, what are they? I had a friend go through something recently, and she got a specialist in who said, this is kind of learned behavior, control grabbing, and the boundaries need to be really, really strong. Now, this is a different scenario, but there's definitely overlaps mm. with my scenario as there are with hers. And we've we've had sort of moments when I've gone, right, we need a bit of a boundary reset now. And this is going to be a bit painful for a few days, but we've got to take back some of that power. And when I say power, I am not talking about any kind of physical or mental damage to my child from his parents. I'm just talking about like hierarchy here and boundaries, which is why I have a child that behaves pretty well at school, but at home can push the boundaries, can push me, knows what to say to trigger me. You're kind of nodding... Do you agree oh. with that? And do you have tips? Because that's one thing I would say, and I'm not yeah. saying I'm getting it right every day. I'm absolutely not. Neither did I, Georgie. And I think that is absolutely normal. And we are only human. And I think because we are thrown in a situation where we have to learn, and we have to learn fast to do good by our children, who obviously are sort of our priority, and with jobs and so on, we are going to make mistakes. But everybody is going to make mistakes as parents. For me, anyways, I really had to learn that I am not 
not just instructing him. That is not the relationship we have. I took him to the side and sometimes that was a thousand times a day and I would sit with him and I would explain it to him. And I had well, to find... you'd explain his challenge to him. Yes, and I would explain why in certain ways he has to function like everybody else though as well right so I was really trying with more love than I actually had to give and more patience that I actually had to to each time sit with him and you know not tell him off not put him on the naughty step not do any of those things because anyways they didn't work because he didn't understand why he was put there in the first place and we had nannies to help because I was working and one was leaving after the other I mean they never stayed because it was very challenging and so I had to find a way to parent this child that wasn't like anybody else I knew at the time uh, at what point did you say to him did you explain the makeup of his brain and how it was different? I mean, you talked about science on the walls because he couldn't follow commands. Yeah. Yeah. Were you very open with him about, um, and so would you advise that? And I, if so, at what point do you sit your child down and explain their biological makeup? And is that I damaging? Think he was, I think he was quite young. I think he might have been seven. I just, I remember reading this book and at one point this book said, if you just stick to the truth, you will have peace. And it just struck with me and it resonated so much that I thought we are now going to be very honest from now on and I'm not going to hold things back anymore and we will discuss everything openly with whatever therapist we're in with and and I want him to be a part of this journey this is his life I need to be really honest with him in the most loving way not in a brutal way so we weren't ever using his being different as a negative thing you know if you sit around the table now sometimes we'll say it as a joke but that's really only how far it will go so it's not that anyone was ever sort of fibbing about it or making a joke or something because that was something that as a sensitive very sensitive child he would have really taken it the wrong way and it would have harmed him so we we really had very honest conversations and I said Ludo mommy loves you more than anything but we need to address your inability to do x y and z right for example in the morning I wake you and I'm waking you already earlier and we have to be out the house and we have 45 minutes before we have to be in the car and we have to go to school. I remember there were so many resets and I think, you know, we must have had hundreds of conversations every day and over the course of the years, they got less and less and less because things do sink in and things became clearer and I think the older they get the more conscious they become about all of those things and you know I still have those conversations with him I mean I just had a conversation with him yesterday about something because he can still be very impulsive at times and he was rude on Sunday evening to his sister and a teacher when I brought them back to their school and you know he had to think about about it and it's the same way I approach it with a ton of love a lot of patience and I put him on the same wavelength as me I'm not talking 
to a child. I'm not talking to my child. I'm talking to another human who is in this world with me on this journey together and we'll talk about it. And sometimes these discussions are very peaceful and sometimes they're unbelievably heated and sometimes they get loud, but they always end up in a positive way and in a sort of harmonious way where we understand each other and we both walk away thinking, yep, we're not going to have to talk about this again today. You don't come across as anyone who would have a particularly loud conversation. No, I, we do and, and we do and, God, and that can be hard for other family members because sometimes my husband, you know, he's been in his job and it's been very hectic all week and then he sits at home on the weekend and we are having very heated discussions about one thing or another and it, and it disturbs him. And so sometimes we have to recalibrate and, you know, Ludo and I, and I will say, Ludo, actually, puppy is really stressed. So this weekend, let's just go and take this discussion elsewhere. So you know you i i i i think the older they get the more mindful you become and the more lessons you've learned and the more conscious you are about everything the more things you have read the more things you have listened to the more you understand their brain each time they get assessed you have these are lengthy assessments these are a lot of tests which maybe we'll talk about into more detail later but you know these are journeys and these journeys tell you exactly what goes on chemically in your child's body and so on and so on so the more you learn I think the more you're able to deal with it and the more tools as you talked mm -hmm. about the toolbox at the beginning Sol I think this is vitally important mm -hmm. every one of us has a toolbox for life mm -hmm. they need a particularly big toolbox earlier mm -hmm. on and so these are all things that can be taught and so I think you know anyone listening here who's maybe a little bit earlier in the journey the the thing that makes me unbelievably hopeful for any uh, neurodiverse or any child that's sort of different there are always ways to manage a situation you know when you say oh I'm so worried about this and that I was crazy worried about his mental health and sometimes I am still worried about it but I think that we've gone through so much we've learned so much mm -hmm. you know the 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 top of one hill is the bottom of the next hill and that is 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 just an incredible way of of going through life and actually learning so much. So I I'm I embrace it wholeheartedly now each time. I never shy away. I, I, I literally think, okay, let's go into battle whenever those conversations need to be had. And they need to be had potentially more than with other children. But that is also a way of bonding. I can't tell you how comforting what you say is and gonna make me cry George. I'm a terrible cry I cry all the time so but on Sunday night we had a like the boundaries the walls had to come down I said to my husband and he's a very very kind man my husband he's got a huge heart as much as we both work I think it's that mother relationship isn't it I'm a lot closer to it sometimes I think it can clash and, and that's Sunday. normal, I think. I think that's absolutely normal, Georgie. And I think you figure out over the course of the time who's a bit better with this and who's a bit better with that. And and you complement each other. And sometimes I was also thinking, oh my God, how is this, how is my marriage going to survive this mm -hmm. journey? I mean, we were absolutely at log heads so many times. He thought we should do this and I thought the exact opposite.
opposite. And guess what? That continues to be a challenge. And I think, and these are all challenges, but it doesn't mean that we can't do it, mm. right? And I think this resilience that that we develop over time, and by the way, that our children develop over time, because I sometimes think the world needs these people more than they need anybody else, because these are seriously resilient kids once they get, you know, I see Ludo now, and I think, God, he's so resilient, it's amazing, mm. you know, he is now the peacemaker in our family, he's a harmonizer, he's the one who anything uh, you know he feels isn't right he will talk to us about it openly as parents you know he went to a camp in the summer and he came back and he said mom and dad I just want to say I want you to be nicer to each other and we looked at each other and we thought we were quite nice to each other and so you know you there are so many things that 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 improve in a way so I really uh, I, I always try and see all of these things super positively yeah. and I can really say that I had a child that was not supposed to get through school that had so many challenges and he's now almost 18 an upper sixth form in a mainstream school he is on medication he takes his supplements he has a weekly therapy session with a wonderful woman that teaches him more tools for his toolbox to walk out and go to university and lead his own life and he's predicted three A's and a B and you know I just want to say these are absolutely doable things and 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 every child is different and and but there is an unbelievable amount of things one can achieve and I think that is an unbelievable hopeful thing and that you know all of those things and his journey made my journey better and more interesting and yeah I just think there is so well, much. Well on Sunday night when but... I said to my husband <laughs> just let me deal with this one I said the walls are going to come down and we're going to have to ride it out. Boundaries I think are really important so would you agree with that as a sort of coping mechanism because you know it is day-to-day -day survival at times as I said medication and I'd love to talk about medication supplementing as well I are two things I really talk about but in terms of coping mechanisms for parents at home and how you like actually manage a child mm -hmm. with ADHD which is really freaking hard um what advice do you give to parents? Well, I think, you know, talking about boundaries, I think the classical behavioral strategies, you know, won't necessarily work with, for a child that has ADHD. So I think, you know, moving from that mindset of what we were taught or how we were brought up or how other children, same age as my child, are being brought up, we need to kind of move from that mindset because it'd probably be quite a different approach. You know, they'll probably need... Um, certain coping mechanisms given their struggles or what they're struggling with, having difficulties with, you know, and I think coping mechanisms, it's such a big topic, but um, yes. it de so depending on the child, I think, um, sorry, depending if it's for the parents or the child, I think that it's important to first recognize what they're struggling with and then put some tools into practice. And, and do you agree... Steffi, and I, I really have taken that on board myself, said she was very open, they were very open with Ludo. Is that something you advise other parents do? Absolutely. I think that it's probably going For to... For them to understand, exactly. fully understand their, their challenge and... 
Exactly, not and just that. And that's presumably why a, a diagnosis is important because some people said, and actually someone said to me once, what's the point of a diagnosis? You're just labelling somebody. Mm. Someone else said, and you're nodding, if you don't, you can't no. give them those that toolbox yeah. unless they know you're nodding you, so yeah. you, you agree. Absolutely, and I think that you need that honesty for them to also understand what's going on for themselves. You know, I think that they do need to know that there are differences. And, how and, the- and in the education system as well, so that... You have the right staff, you have the right help, you have the of right... Of course. I think honesty is incredibly important and I, I don't think they're too... I mean, too young, but I think six, seven is already an okay age to yeah. start letting them know what's going on and explaining them that their brains work differently, but not because of that. They can achieve less or more. You know, it's just a different approach that they need to undertake in order to achieve. And, you know? and they know they're different, right? So when yeah. you know that your yeah. child feels different, that's when you have to go in. Because otherwise, they will separate themselves from their surroundings, right? Which I think... From their peers who aren't the same and then who, feel like they don't fit in. Exactly. Yeah. And so I can see, you know, now I see when we go somewhere and Ludo and I will look and think, gosh, yeah, and he's saying he's ADHD <laughs> because he will immediately recognize himself in this other child uh, or, or, or or you know kid who is his same age yeah. and and I think that's how you friendships come you know they talk about it and they talk about it with each other and 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 this is where the camaraderie comes in and even if they have you know potentially issues I mean Ludo doesn't have any social issues now and and whenever he thinks he does for example when he upped his medication now for for the a levels he knew that he will have he will be different to the outside world and he sat down because his friends he's a bit zoned out well because he ha- he's less empathetic and he's a very empathetic person otherwise he's less empathetic he's a bit more robotic he wins- wants to stick to himself he wants to do the school and go to his room and, and you know usually he he isn't like that so he sat his house down where he is in school he sat his teachers down he sat his friends down and he said guys this is the what the situation is now on these days when I'm taking medication this is most probably how I will be and uh, please if I'm not a hundred percent empathetic and you tell me something and I'm not jumping on it then please forgive me because it is because I am on this medication that is helping me to function with in a school setting which which is just what they have to get through right but he's he's like the most high eq child i've ever heard of i mean you should but i think so that's bad. really nurture right i don't I'm, mm. I'm not sure i mean i think that i i'm definitely i'm definitely riding on my eq and have been my whole life so he he, he genetically got the adhd also from our family right mm. so uh, everything is genetics in a way but i think the moment when we all really realized what this means chemically and understand that you know having taken all the tests and every test and how much dopamine does he have how much other uh, hormones Mm. does he have all the toxin tests all of the things that you do once you diagnose a child and and before you give the medication um he really 
learned what that meant and everything fell into place because when a person doesn't have any dopamine at all and the body simply doesn't produce it of course that person is going to be different so in order to get the dopamine not only through supplements which which are helping a little bit but really aren't doing you know are not getting them to a place where they're functioning within a school setting and an exam setting. He He's taking this medication and I feel very strongly that this is really important. I feel that parents who don't go there because they have an opinion of a mm. psychiatrist or an opinion of psychodrugs, that is neglect. You know, I, I But it's a big, there's a big stigma around it, right? I mean, I read a book and I'm going to give a very quick analogy because... It, it was this analogy and another mother who's very wise like you, Steffi. But there was an analogy. It's a book about children with neurodiversity and there's a different chapter for every... So there's a chapter on dyslexia, a chapter on dyspraxia, dyscalculia, ADHD. And at the end, it's a brilliant book because it's all sort of broken down to digestible bullet points. And at the end of every chapter, there is three case studies from different people who've had... Well, it might be an 18-year-old, it might be a 26-year-old, a parent... And the analogy around medication was of a child who was 18, let's say, saying, it's like going, or it's like going to the O2, being in the back seat, your teacher standing on stage while Coldplay is playing without a microphone and mouthing the instructions to you. And like, you can't hear a word they're saying. Absolutely. Taking medication is like being in the front of the O2, being the only person in the auditorium. Coldplay aren't on stage and your teacher's got a microphone and it's just you and her and she's reading you the instructions and you go, okay, I know what to do. It gives me chills even saying that. But my husband was really anti-medication and I was a really wise woman who was kind of five years ahead of me and she told me about her friends and how I had just changed their life and their family dynamic. For us, it changed every morning and it takes a while to kick in. For people listening, you take medication every day and it wears off by the end of the day. Well, there are some that build up, yeah. aren't there? But in the main, yeah. you take something that lasts for six, three, six, nine yeah. hours um, and then it wears off. So the beginning of the day and the end of the day mm. are the challenges. But it is a game changer. It's also very common, isn't it, that as children learn, build that toolbox, build the coping mechanisms, they can ease themselves off the medication, but then they might take it during an exam period, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think that depends, again, where your child is on the spectrum. I mean, my child, Ludo, he doesn't have to take medication every day, but in a school setting or a learning environment, which is now in the last year of, uh, you know, A-levels, it's it's very serious. So the whole half term, he took his medication every day because he had to study. And, and, and he doesn't necessarily need to take it then on a weekend or every day, didn't take it all summer. And then he is a different person. And of course, it's things are more different difficult when he's not taking the medication so um swings and roundabouts yes i sometimes think this is why when they're 10 or even when they're six or when they're four we have to find coping mechanisms for all of us because it's not that that child is going to be radically different i mean it, you know they learn more tools and things become easier and they're more aware and and all of that but they are still that child yeah. without any dopamine and so i think um yeah it, it it's it's this journey to understand 
uh, and I'm not at the end of the journey because he's not 35 either, right? So we're still in the sort of yeah. thick of it where you have to get through your A-levels. You, um, He will do a gap year for sure because I think otherwise he doesn't understand why he's going to university in the first place. And, and you know, every experience will teach him something. He's done an internship at a bank this summer and he walked onto a training floor and he just thought, gosh, everybody is like me here. You know, it was fantastic for him to, to have that experience but he couldn't have done it without his medication sometimes yeah. i think is he gonna stop after school or university well maybe he won't i don't know i, I, I read an article in the sunny times magazine it was written by a journalist who said he'd self-diagnosed a year before he was 37 or something and he said my adhd made me totally lacking in tolerance for any job that bored me yeah. and no. so i've done loads of jobs and he said, I've then discovered that, that I love being a journalist and my medication is allowing me to sit here and write this article. And it was so powerful. So talk to us about medication. It, it's, there are a lot of people very anti-medication. I also read from the same journalist that in the US, they have yeah. a bit of a tendency. I love you. I love Americans. If you're listening, I'm not out to get you. <laughs> I love Americans. They have a tendency to over-prescribe. In the UK, we have a tendency to under-prescribe. So you know, it's hopefully some middle ground. What's your advice to people about medication? I think that my advice is that not to just focus on medication. I think medication is not just the only tool or the only solution. I think there has to be a combination of that toolbox of... But it's, it's one of... Absolutely, it's one-off. But I think it's also important to have two sides. But I do think that medication can be a game-changer for a lot of people. If it's needed, you know, it should be, let's say, allowed or given. So, so if you have a toolbox of things, mechanisms to help you live your best life as somebody who's neurodiverse... Mm -hmm. What does that look like? I mean, is that medication combined with supplements, combined with love? Someone said love is so important for a child. One of that. Um, nutrition. Is it therapy? Is it, sorry, what are you going to say? Nutrition. Nutrition, therapy. So, so yeah, is that what it is? It's definitely, so as a sort of summary for people listening, if, if they sort of want to go away and work on these different areas, what does that what does that toolbox look like? I mean, I've listed quite a few of them. How would you summarize that toolbox? Um, so the the first one is definitely the medication. The second one is the supplements. And the supplements, you can buy a book called Finally Focused by Greenblatt. This is the most accessible thing ever. You can read this book. You try out the different supplements that can be bought over the counter. Um, it, it, it really very quickly becomes obvious what really works. And I think the most important one is zinc, high dosage zinc, magnesium, but not only one. It has to be the three different magnesium with L3 and L3-anine, um, omegas, high dosage, B vitamins, all of them high dosage and vitamin D, super important. Those are my go-to. Ludo takes them every day, twice in the morning and in the evening usually or different things at different times. But I think the magnesium is one of the most important ones. And I learned that through Finally Focused. And I then made sure with someone like you, Saul, to make sure that this is really the right thing. But I think this is very easy. Nutrition, he eats really no gluten. He's also celiac, but he eats no gluten gluten. He doesn't really have many milk products. We really try from a nutrition point of view, never any E numbers. That's the death of an ADHD child. Literally, that's when they lose it. So you have to be careful on the sweet side and try and pack them with 
broccoli, the super greens, you know, meats, lots of really good protein. So I think the nutrition side is definitely a part of my toolbox. Therapy is definitely a part of his toolbox or our toolbox. I mean, he loves his lesson once a week. And he often says this is absolutely, I've, I've sort of been, you know, feeling not so great today. And then the therapy session comes along and he loves the woman. And he, he sees somebody from the recovery center is that right? And that is someone who actually works with a Dr. Pablo Yechmian in West Sussex, and he has his own practice, and mm -hmm. she works for him. Her name is Jean Claire Bishop, and she's lovely. Um, someone like you, Saul, who works with ADHD kids day in and day out, and also other um, children. But um, but really, she's very good at that, and she teaches him a form of sort of consciousness practice slash meditation. But we can't call it that because he hates that word. So mm. I sort of think, you know. We, I could teach him that, but I'm his mom, so I can't teach him that. Yeah, so this yeah. person is teaching him those sort of tools and how to keep, you know, time, they're time blind. I mean, mine is for sure. So, you know, learn how to organize yeah. your day, how to organize yourself, how to turn up on time, how to, all of those things that mm -hmm. you need when you're growing up and you need to start uh, conducting your life by yourself. Um you know, even to advise on driving lessons. And, you know, if you read the stats with driving and ADHD, that's a horrifying mm. four months. So you try and pack it all in there in this lesson. And then I think those... And what on, age? Those... What age does that come in? Ludo only started doing it at 16 and I really wish he had started much earlier. Mm. I think I would have stuck him in there at the age of six if yeah. I had known better. And at the and that's time... Something, that's different to a speech and language therapist. Or yeah. That. That's yeah. a psychiatrist. The, so, you know, we see a psychiatrist if there's a change in medication yeah. or yeah. a drastic change in something but I guess what you were so saying this is, is a CBT therapist yeah. right so this is a cognitive behavioral therapist okay. and you were going to add something else to your and I think the other one for me in the toolbox is the honest conversations mm. and the love and I think that's sort of our toolbox and you know, sometimes you need one of those things, but really you need them all to work together at mm -hmm. all times yeah. to optimize yeah. their days and their life and our life. And our life, yeah. And then we each have another toolbox. And that's something, Georgie, I think is also so important. And I'm sure Saul has worked with families before. You need to make up your toolbox and you need to learn what is in that toolbox. You, and I need you in my toolbox. Well, I'd love to be in your <laughs> toolbox. I'm going to podcast but, but in my toolbox and listen to it every time. I'm... I think I've learned so many amazing things over the years and I'm sure there's a ton more for me to learn. So I'm nowhere near the end of that journey. But, you know, I really really learned to meditate and I'm really good at it now and you find ways to recharge your own battery so that you can show up the way you have to for your child and you're not constantly thinking I am overwhelmed and unable to cope. So do you agree? Absolutely and yeah. I think what you're talking about sounds like self-regulation. I think that if yeah. you want to promote your child to be more self-regulated it has to come from you first because you are modeling that for your child so yeah. that meditation yoga breathing calming techniques you know that is all going to contribute to that self-regulation that is ultimately the aim of everyone especially 
people with ADHD. Uh, so as part of the toolbox that, when I, I don't know if they don't like to call it meditation, but, you know, something that connects body and mind, you know, that helps yeah. calm down the nervous system. You know. They learn you breathing ex- techniques. Breathing and exercise, are you a big... Yeah. yeah, so I think that's, for Ludo, that's vitally important. So, you know, I will make him go to the gym once a day when he's home and uh, he plays tennis for his school. He's not really otherwise sort of amazing at rugby or, or at football or any of the other sports and, 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 and doesn't love them, but he's a really good tennis player. And Can I so, tell you... That, that you said this to me when I met you about the tennis. And this summer we were staying at a house uh, in Yorkshire and we had a guy come and teach some tennis every day. And he said, he taught Otto, and he said that he had a son with ADHD and he said tennis is a brilliant game for mm. child with ADHD mm. because it's quick. Mm, yeah. And they know that really stuck with me. Yeah, it's, it, 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 you said it, what you it, said it, about It's, it's amazing for him this tennis and really the 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 if you would have heard him between the ages of 10 and maybe 16 he would have thought I'm only good at that mm. so I think it's given him an enormous uh, confidence boost it's made him friends uh, he learned so many lessons through it and he was really thriving and you have to find one thing mm. it doesn't matter what it is but you have to find one thing where they can thrive so that will then it's like it's putting a, 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 a rod into a, a river you know you put the rod in and you have to f- just attach one thing and then you start pulling and everything else will come along with it sort of that's how I sometimes think it really that's how it works and I and I think that's definitely worked this way really really well for my son mm. I mean I think exercise is extremely important you know at the end of the day you want to influence that dopamine you know response so I think exercise is very important and like you said you know any exercise that involves rules sticking to rules boundaries problem solving you know can also be transferred to other areas of life so I think exercise has a lot of benefits for people with ADHD yeah so is there anything and we're coming to the end now is there anything we haven't touched on that you as a psychotherapist rely on share with your patients with the parents of your patients something you'd add I think that I mean we've covered quite a bit but there's there's also it's quite a complex and, and broad topic but I think that something that's very important is for parents to embrace, be understanding, accepting, but not just of their child, but of themselves, you know, and and as much as they want to help the child, I think it has to start from helping themselves, you know, I think it all starts from there. If you're able to help yourself and be understanding of yourself, then you can put that into practice with your child, you know, so I think that, I I mean, we've, we've touched on it but I think it's extremely important that the parents are open to maybe having therapy themselves if it's not therapy some support you know join support groups do some reading understanding not just about the child but about themselves I think that's so important because we all need a village they need a village and we need a village and so that that's that I can only highly recommend I think that that has to be the place that we finish. I'm so grateful to you both. Thank you so much. 
I need to bring my son to come and see you and I just want to take you home with me. <laughs> well, thank you, thank Georgie. You. I'm so grateful that you are using this platform to talk about mm -hmm. this very important topic and there is so much we still need to work on. So thank you. Well, we will be continuing the conversation. Thank I've you said so for a while that this is something I clearly feel very passionately in and this is the first I hope of many conversations. Um, thank you, Sol. Thank you, Steffi. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, thank thank you, you Sol. Steffi. There will be a link to the book, Finding Your Focus, a link to Sol's practice in the notes below. We will be back soon with the next Neurodiversity podcast. Until then, do please leave a comment, subscribe if you haven't already, and thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.